Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Sarah's... Waking and baking. No, don't burn my thing. I was just lighting the match next to the thing. Oh. Let it light in the thing and then listen. Sound marijuana... Just kidding. <laughs> I should figured it would be good for effects. <laughs> That's my sister, Sarah. She's a proud, high-functioning stoner. It's 9 a.m., by the way. 9 a.m. As you may have gathered by now, for my family, weed was always there. There's this one story from my childhood that really sums it up. Some may raise an eyebrow when they hear it, but it's one I've always loved. We recently revisited the story with our dear friend, Patty Campbell. She was the director of social work at my nursery school where the incident took place. Picture this. It's 1976, Braxton County, West Virginia. Little Jamie just sat down to circle time. Everyone is getting ready to sing a song. But Jamie and her two friends from their back-to-the-land community are doing something different. Here's Patty. And there you are in the circle. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you start modeling the grown-ups and passing the joint around. And there, it was quite the stir. I was three years old. Here you are, little, little kids, and what do you do as a three, four, or five-year-old? You do what your parents do. You know, we often were in a circle playing music, smoking pot. And that's exactly what you were modeling in that little group. Patty and one of the preschool teachers were both from the Back to the Land community, too. They thought our make-believe pot smoking was pretty funny. The other preschool teacher was less amused. Her husband was a state trooper. It was so cute, but not good. So there you have it, my early influences in a nutshell, or rather, a roach clip. A few three-year-olds pretending to get high during circle time may seem pretty far from answering my question from the last episode, the one about why Marcia thought her drug dealing would never get her in trouble. But it's all related, and it gets way more dramatic. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. And I'm Karen Zellermeyer. And this is I Was Never There, Episode 6. I hear the voice in the morning as she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling like I should have been home yesterday. Yesterday. 
When I got down to West Virginia in 1973, everything about my life was new. I was 24 years old, a few years married to Milton, and I had just given birth to Jamie 10 days before. The 262 acres that we bought in Braxton County for $16,000 had nothing on it except a ramshackle farmhouse. It was on us to build our own home. Step one to living self-sufficiently. We decided on a geodesic dome, 20 feet high, 40 feet across, constructed out of triangles with absolutely no right angles. To get the proper curvature so that it would be an enclosed space, we had to use a combination of triangles that formed hexagons. And also we had overhead. We left out some triangles and put in skylights. But that also there were also problems with sealing the edges making them waterproof. I mean, in some way, I didn't know what I was doing, which was a continual problem, but uh, came up with our own solutions. And it was a good effort. And had a lot of good times there. That's Milton, Jamie's dad. Milton built our dome with help from our friends and my cousin Michael. It had a gorgeous staircase made from 10 different kinds of wood all grown on our farm, along with a big fireplace built from stones we gathered from local streams. We made plenty of mistakes along the way, but when it was done, the dome was gorgeous. The locals called our dome that round house. And because our land was in an area called High Knob, named because it's one of the highest points in the county, they called us and our group of friends the High Knob Hippies. In the beginning, there were 15 or 20 of us living in the vicinity of the Knob. We had potlucks and dance parties and solstice celebrations and music jams. We helped with each other's building projects and harvests, caught each other's babies, and of course, through it all, we got high. The seven years we lived that life were magical. But life on High Knob wasn't always rosy. As much as my parents and their friends aspired to take society down to the studs and rebuild it, they found that they were recreating some of the dynamics they hated most about the mainstream. Because remember, the men were like these macho pioneer type men who cut wood and, you know, had horses. Gender stereotypes followed them. The men built and farmed and worked the land. The women cooked and gardened and cleaned the house and took care of the children. As you might expect, my hyper-feminist mom was pissed. So were some of the other women, including Patty. So they did something very 70s. They formed a consciousness-raising circle. From there, things started to change. All the women started to hang out and talk. And we talked about orgasms, we talked about vagina, right? We talked about just, it was a classic women's consciousness group. I remember the start of that consciousness-raising circle vividly. At our first meeting, the two lesbians in the group made a prediction. 
by the time we're finished, all of you will have slept with a woman. And they were right, we did. Some of us became lesbians and still are to this day, like me. For some, like Patty, it was a brief moment of sexual experimentation. Patty and I had started sleeping together around the time the group formed. In our circle, we talked a lot about rejecting monogamy. Patty and I enthusiastically dove into that. In addition to sleeping with each other, we also started sleeping with other men and women in our community. It was during that time that I told Milton that I wanted to separate. He moved out of the dome and Patty moved in. Just for the record, I need to say, Milton and I did not have an open relationship. And the first person I slept with out of that relationship was you. You ended my parents' marriage. (laughs) I wasn't the only one. (laughs) And I still regret it. When we moved in together, it turned everything upside down. And we were wild. I mean, we were wild. We were sleeping two or three people. I mean, we were, there were no rules. Besides pushing back against monogamy, Patty and my mom were doing something else. Gardening. A lot. They planted and tended a big, beautiful garden outside our dome filled with vegetables and flowers. They planted a lot of one flower in particular. Latin name, Cannabis sativa. The garden had 20 raised beds. At the back of the garden, four of the 20 beds had pot plants. I had sexed the plants to pull out all the male plants because you didn't want the females to become impregnated by the male plants. We wanted them to be lesbian marijuana plants. Karen was a great gardener, and we we did French intensive method. We had beautiful plants, and we just were stupid because we thought they were magical. Veil was covering our plants. There it is, our big, dumb rationalization for doing patently illegal shit. The magic veil. Patty and I would talk about this veil protecting our garden. We'd joke that anyone who had ill will towards us or our plants just wouldn't be able to see them. And even though we were kind of joking, we also kind of believed it. Part of our belief was logical. The dome was out in the middle of nowhere, far from any public roads, with no view of any other houses. And part of it was ideological. We felt it was ridiculous that pot was criminalized. This, plus the fact that we were young, attractive, and white, amounted to an utter certainty that nothing bad would happen to us. Looking back, I see now that Patty and I were out of our fucking minds. When I hear how cavalier my mom and Patty were about growing marijuana and how many risks Marcia took to procure it, I'm both amazed and completely unsurprised. If you think you're invincible, you do whatever you want. I didn't fully get the extent of that until I heard this story from Patty. When did we go to Jamaica and had Jamie Carey? <laughs> what? That... Tell, me, tell me, Patty. I met up with the Jamaican man on the beach. And it was like 
I don't know where we got the idea to bring back hash oil. And so when we came back through, we put it in your, in your sleeping bag that you carried through customs. Did she never tell you this? No. <laughs> we were stupid, Jamie. This is, I mean, we were really, I mean, can you imagine as a mom now? You know, if we'd gotten caught, Jamie, you would have been in foster care. But it all turned out good. It all turned out good. There was magic around it. When Patty anyway, told that story, I was sitting next to Jamie. I didn't turn my head fully. I just glanced at her out of the corner of my eye. But I was thinking, oh, fuck. And I was thinking, what the fuck? All my life, I've had mixed feelings about how I was raised. On one hand, I'm a little bit in awe of what my parents and their friends created. A sense of true community that had way more spontaneity and freedom than I have in my urban life in Brooklyn. I want all that and don't quite know how to make it a reality for myself. The truth is, I envy it. But on the other hand, their go-with-the-flow, free-spiritedness didn't always feel stable for me as a kid. Sometimes it felt like us kids were just along for the ride. I'll never really know if I'm anxious by nature or maybe by nurture, but either way, it was hard for me. The story about the hash oil in my sleeping bag felt like that mentality taken to the extreme. First, it stunned me. Then it made me wonder, how could two people who are so smart be so stupid? Now I know the magic veil. Like Patty said, they really did feel like there was some kind of magic protecting them. Until, that is, it didn't. Can you visualize the day of the bust? My bust? Yes. Oh, yeah. We're driving in the car. We're coming home from the watershed. Lovely July, late afternoon, early evening, and feeling good. We're in the car. You're all in the the car. car. Everybody's in the car. car. I'm in the car. Everybody's in the car, chattering away. Patty does her screaming. She was in gestalt therapy, which was about letting your emotions out. Sometimes she would pick Sarah up from daycare and Sarah and Patty would drive out to the farm with the windows open, screaming at the top of their lungs. Driving, We're driving. Screaming. You're happy. I'm not screaming, but I, I wasn't a screamer. And we bump into Burton at the church, right? And remember, the church is where we would turn down the road. Burton is our neighbor and very dear friend. And he stopped stopped us. You run into Burton, who's run. your neighbor, who you had bought the land with originally. Correct, Burton. And he says... And he says, the state police were here. They were down at your farm. They took all your plants. You got busted. I can almost conjure up the what happened to my body, the sense of 
absolute panic that I felt and worked very hard to hold down. Almost like darkness. It was like almost darkness in my head. Our desks had been ransacked, books. I mean, it was just, it was a total mess. And there was a note on the table from the state trooper, J.W. Morris, saying, as you can see, we were here. Call us. And he left a phone number. So you call him. So I called him. And we see, I mean, like our, our herbs were gone. Like we had, I used to buy some herbs in bulk from the food co-op and like bags of parsley were missing. And Right. They took your teapot. They took the cookbook for anarchy. The anarchist cookbook. Did you ever get that back? I never, we never got anything back. Never got the teapot back. No, nothing. And I called JW and said, what, what do we do? Do we have to come in? He said, ah, oh, no, nah, you don't have to come in today. You can come in in the morning. You all need to come in in the morning and it's okay. We know you're not going to go anywhere and just come down to the magistrate's office in the morning and, you know, tell Milton he has to come down too. So what happens next? That morning we get up and Patty calls in to work and they already knew and they told her not to come back. I was kicked out of my job without, you know, just bam, never go back. Don't say bye to your clients. You know, I had this whole fantasy that nothing was going to happen. They would give us a little slap on the wrist But when we went into the magistrate's office, they said we had to each pay $2,000 to stay out of jail. And the only way we could do that was to sign over the farm. And I refused because I had this fantasy that if I had to go to jail, I would just take the kids and run. So I wasn't going to sign over the farm. So that's when they put us in jail. My mom's booked and Patty's booked. George Cooper, a local attorney, is let into the cell to talk to them. He advises my mom to sign over the farm. She refuses. Whatever they decide, George tells my mom and Patty they'll need a lawyer. He invites them to come and talk when they're released. A few hours later, the jailer lets them out. Burton's outside waiting for them. As co-owner of the land, he had signed over the farm. He just couldn't stand seeing us in jail. It was making him crazy. So he signed us out. That's when I take George up on his offer to talk. By now, Milton has driven down from Morgantown, and the three of us go to George's office together. George tells Milton he has nothing to worry about. Even though his name is on the deed, everyone knows that we're separated. He's going to law school, and he lives in Morgantown. George says they don't have a case. He tells Patty she'll be okay, too. She has a respectable job in town. In court, he'll say she rents a room from me, goes to work, and has nothing to do with what happens on the farm. Then he looks at me. You, Karen, got a problem. In the six months between being busted and our court dates... We were scared shitless. I was so stressed, some of my teeth came loose. I was the first to go to trial, and when it finally happened, we got lucky. The prosecution really fucked up their case. 
What the prosecution needed to do to win their case was prove the pot they found belonged to my mom. But as my dad explained to me, it wasn't so easy to connect her to the land where the troopers found the plants. Mom is accused of possessing marijuana with intent to manufacture. And you'd think possession is kind of easy to prove, but you have to actually witness somebody in possession of the substance. Or if you don't do that, you can say that her ownership established that she possessed what was in the in the garden or in the in the dome. And the way to do that is to look at the deed for the property and point to where the garden was on that paper. Easy, right? Not really. You go out to the property and it's just land. It doesn't have boundary markers painted on the ground. And without those markers, turns out matching the land in question to the map on the deed can be quite difficult. So in this case, the prosecutor had the trooper on the stand and handed him a deed and asked, is this the deed that you looked at when you got the search warrant? And he said yes. And he also asked him, looking at a map that was attached to the deed, if he could point out on the map where on this map was the garden, what are the plants, and where on the map was the house. This is where the prosecution messed up. As I recall, when he was asked to point to the map, he looked kind of puzzled, maybe not quite sure. Well, as it turned out that the deed that he was handed by the prosecutor and that map related to, not to our property, but to an adjoining piece of land that we had sold off a few years before. So then if he said that, then it would be that they weren't on our property. Correct. At the time, the prosecuting attorney didn't realize he was showing the trooper the wrong deed. The trooper didn't catch the mistake either, but he knew something was off. He couldn't identify where the dome and the garden were on the map he was given. So after court adjourned that day, he and the prosecuting attorney drove back up to the dome to look at the garden. In another stroke of luck, our neighbors saw them. They called my mom's attorney, George, to tell him what they saw. My preschool teacher's husband, Trooper J.W. Morris, in our driveway, stalled out in the mud. We all had a relationship with mud and vehicles in particular. Everybody got stuck sooner or later. The next morning, George told the judge that Trooper Morris had been up to the property again, this time without a warrant. Because it would have been improper in the middle of the trial to start gathering evidence like this. We get in the next morning after the state troopers had gotten stuck in our yard, and our attorney actually says to the judge, we need to go into chambers. Something happened, we need to go into chambers. And we all go into chambers. And George Cooper says, Your Honor, I don't know what happened, but there was a police car out stuck in the mud in the Zellermeyer's front yard. And the trooper goes, why, Honor, that was just me and the prosecuting attorney. You know, we got a little confused yesterday. So we thought we'd go out there and look around. And George Cooper says, they can't do that, Your Honor. My client's a Jew. She knows what happened in Nazi Germany. First, 
They say they don't need a search warrant to go in the yard, but then they're going to say they don't need a search warrant to go in the house. And my clients know what can happen in the world, and that's not okay. This is, you know, a serious breach of conduct, and it's showing that the case is sort of falling apart. And at that point, the judge said, I need some time to think about this. Y'all give me some space. And it was at that point, while we were on break, waiting to get called back in, that for the first time, the prosecuting attorney offered me a deal. And George Cooper said, we'll probably win at this point, but I'm costing you a lot of money, so you may want to just take the deal. And I did. The deal was to plead guilty to simple possession, which was a misdemeanor rather than a felony, serve six months probation, and pay a $500 fine and expungement of the record. The rest of it went the way George said it would. My dad's charges were dropped later that night, and it took another six months before they offered Patty a deal of two years probation with a $500 fine. But eventually they did, and it was over. So you were living in the middle of nowhere. So I, like, how did they even find these plants? So three days before we got busted, the power company flew over our power lines and they sprayed them with these really fucked up toxic chemicals. And I got really upset because earlier in the spring, I'd gone into the power company and told them we didn't want them to spray and we would clear the lines ourselves, which we did. And then they flew over, saw they were clear, and they sprayed anyway. These fucking toxic chemicals they sprayed on our farm. I ran into the house and I called the power company and I said, I am suing you motherfuckers. And three days later, we were busted and we were told that the police were given information by a reliable and confidential informant. Who you believe was the power company. Who we believe was the power company. And over the years, I have been told by friends that they're pretty certain it was the power company. So in your mind, you were trying to do something political, positive. Yeah, in my mind, I was trying to, yes, I was trying to, and and it was stupid, right? Again, it was that magic veil and invincibility that I thought I could be both political and take a stand and not ha- and think that there wouldn't be blowback from that. Brazen. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of funny parts of this very scary experience, but the thing that I find the most amusing is that amidst all this stress and fear and intensity and involvement with the very unmagical workings of the U.S. justice system, my mom and Patty never abandoned their faith in magic entirely. So the magic veil really did hold up in some ways. Ah. (laughs) Right? It did protect us. Somehow we were mostly made whole. It's possible. Uh, You know what? My darling daughter, it is all possible. That stuff is not without any substance at all. I think all that is as real as anything else. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When my mom's trial was over, George Cooper handed her a bill for $10,000. 
true to form, my mom made a vow. I'll get you the money, but I'm not going to do it legally. On one of our drives back from West Virginia to New York, I heard the story of what exactly my mom did to get George the money. So what happened when you got busted? How'd you pay your lawyer? Because you never told me that. Or maybe I knew it, but I forgot. I was in New York, and I was working, and our friend Ronnie, who was Jamaican, had begun an importing business. I went down to Florida. Somebody got the pot from the boat and brought it to a somebody else's place. And then my job, when buyers came, was to go to that place and pick up the weed and bring it to our house where Ronnie would meet with the people and, I guess, and transfer the weed to the buyer. And so I was down there for a little over a week. The remainder of the money that I owed George Cooper, I earned on that trip. In addition to the payment, I brought up five pounds for someone, which I just put in my backpack. They looked like books, you know, they were packed really tight and compactly. They actually looked like books. So it was like I had five books, very potent smelling books in my backpack that I actually carried on as a carry-on. On a plane? On an airplane. And because I remember as I put it on to go through, I was a little nervous and I kind of stood back while I watched my bag go through and I did have this moment of shit. Okay, now I got to... What, is there security? Yeah. Picked it up on the other side and went on my way and nothing so ever happened. after you were busted. So even after my mom came this close to going to prison with two kids under seven... She continued to do stuff that was irrefutably illegal and could have yet again landed her in prison. But the bus did change the course of our lives. Like Milton, I left our back-to-the-land life to start graduate school at West Virginia University. That's how I ended up in Morgantown and eventually the Earth House with Marcia. When I moved in there, I made a not entirely surprising discovery. Our favorite adorable yacht babes and pot smugglers, Marcia and Michelle, had their own version of the magic veil. When Marcia and I were batting around ideas for um, doing our memoir, whenever we were able to talk about what we were doing and write it down, the, what, what I wanted the names to be was Handbook of an Outlaw. And the first chapter, I was never there. And so can, do you remember the origin of I Was Never There? Huh. No, I'll have to ponder that one. You want to know? Oh, gosh, yes. This is the story as we know it. One of the things Michelle and Marcia did in Morgantown was volunteer with the Jewish prisoners at the local minimum security federal men's prison, the Kennedy Center. Some of the young men Marcia met when volunteering were in a work-study program, which allowed them to leave and do coursework at WVU. Whenever they weren't in class, they were supposed to go straight back to the Kennedy Center. But the Earth House was just a block from campus. So when the guys had free time, they'd go there instead, smoke some weed, and hang out. They used to come to the house in between their classes. And the joke would be that they would have Marcia stand in front of a mirror and say, I was never there. It wasn't me. I was never there. It must have been someone who looked like me. And then we would all do that. I was never there. 
He was never there. No, none of us were ever there. Marcia loved that phrase. She said it all the time. It was perfect. Plausible deniability in four magic words. I was never there. Even after the boat explosion in Colombia, Marcia didn't stop dealing. In fact, she got deeper into drugs and her decisions got riskier. What I saw was a dramatic change in everyone who was involved when cocaine hit. Marcia began thinking differently when she started doing cocaine in a big way. She was no longer making smart judgments. She continued to work with people who had proven themselves to be untrustworthy and dangerous. I really needed to process this with my mom. When you think about your life and you think about Marsha's life, obviously you didn't get as deep into it, but do you see yourself as different from Marsha? Luckier? Smarter? Stupider? We were both doers and movers and not afraid to take risks. And I was luckier for lots of different reasons. I was lucky that I didn't like cocaine or hard drugs or speed. So I never did them because for the folks who did them, it fucked them up. And Marcia got pretty fucked up from those drugs. Other than that, I could try to rationalize that the risks I took were less risky than the risks Marsha took, and I can still try to make that case, but I still took risks that could have jeopardized you and Sarah and my future. But you had the magic veil. But I had the magic veil. And would I do anything differently? I'm almost embarrassed to say probably not. Probably would have done it all. Again, I still have some feelings of invincibility, even at the ripe young age of 72. I guess the magic veil didn't, maybe didn't work for Marcia. Her veil was a little thinner. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, I think drugs might dilute the power of the veil. In the first episode, I asked a question. If Marcia and I were so similar, which we were, why am I still here and she's not? I'll start by saying this. Marcia and I were part of a generation that was much less fearful, much more hopeful, and very drug-infused. At their best, those three elements worked together to help us accomplish incredible things. We made it our business to create a whole new way of life that prioritized love and justice, cooperation and acceptance. At their worst, though, these three qualities sometimes led to very bad decisions. Decisions that were too hopeful or too fearless or that involved too many drugs, whether taking them, growing them or selling them. As it so often is, The same things that were our greatest assets were also our biggest downfalls. So why am I here and Marsha's not? I stand by what I told Jamie. The deciding factor for me and Marsha 
and for so many others in our generation, was luck. When Marcia disappeared, she left behind a profoundly mixed bag filled with darkness and light. Trying to measure out which force is more strongly represented would be like going to a spot where the river meets the ocean and trying to separate salt water from fresh. Given all of that, what is her legacy? What did she leave behind? I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Jamie Zellermeyer, and my mom, Karen, and it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wollner, Lindsay Cradwell, Adesua Agbenile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekjian. The theme music is Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate your help in getting the word out. Send the show to 10 of your friends and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There. <laughs>